Coming up today, we look at the future of mRNA vaccines and explore the use of brain training apps as a tool for tackling police brutality. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Amit Katwala. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hi. This was the week when finance ministers from the G7 group of nations met in London for talks aimed at securing a global deal to raise more in taxes from the likes of Amazon, Facebook and Google. The need is acute. Last year, Microsoft's Irish subsidiary made £222 billion in profit but paid no corporation tax. Why? It's a resident of Bermuda for tax purposes. This is also the week that 128 baby squid are heading to space. Launched on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, the squid are part of an experiment investigating the relationship between animals and microbes. They're joined by thousands of little tardigrades, so they won't be lonely on their journey either. And finally, this was the week when NASA announced plans for two robotic missions to Venus. Veritas will orbit the second planet from the sun and should launch in 2028. And Da Vinci Plus will launch in 2029 and will parachute through the planet's burning toxic atmosphere to measure its composition and structure, which we still know very little about compared to our other neighbour Mars. But the probe staying on Venus will be short-lived as it will melt within a few minutes of landing. Maybe one of the things that they'll be looking for is life on Venus, right? There was that very surprising finding a few months ago that there were organic compounds flying around in the Venusian clouds. But that's been a bit controversial since, hasn't it, Amit? Yeah, that's right. And I think it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, back in the, the 70s or 80s, there was a kind of decision to focus on Mars as being a more likely source of useful scientific discoveries and perhaps water, because it was, I guess it was thought to be more Earth-like. But actually, now we're realising that maybe there's secrets to be discovered on Venus as well. But getting there, well, getting there is easy, but doing any long-term science is incredibly hard. You know, we can have rovers on the surface of Mars very successfully for several years, but Venus being a total hellhole crushes them and melts them to death within just a few minutes. So it will be a fleeting visit, but hopefully one that will return a lot of interesting science. Speaking of science, what did we learn this week, Matt Burgess? Uh, This week I learned about the... uh, the sex lives of earthworms. Um, so during the courting process, um, an earthworm can visit the home uh, of its potential mate up to 17 times before they actually uh, have sex. And when they do have sex, scientists have found, uh, and they did this by filming the worms in action, uh, that it can last for between uh, 69 and 200 minutes, which is quite a long time, I would say. I guess so. But it's good that the scientists are on top of filming earthworms having sex and working out their courting process. It's important work, and thank you for bringing it to our attention. Amit, what did you learn this week? I learned that owls don't have eyeballs. Instead, their eyes are shaped like tubes, which are held rigidly in place by bones called sclerotic rings. Uh, This means that owls can't roll their eyes around the way that we do, which is why they have to move their entire head around to get a good look, which is why they can do that weird, you know, uh, exorcist twisty head thing because they don't have eyeballs they need to twist their entire head to look around so that means that an owl cannot roll its eyes if it's disapproving of you it it has no option but to just swivel its head 
Yeah, it would have to just tip its head back and forth in a... In a which, which is weird, because I've always felt of owls are having quite a disapproving look generally, so maybe they don't need to roll their eyes as much as we do. Maybe not. Maybe the tubes are sufficient. Thank you very much. For our first story this week, we are talking about the COVID-19 vaccines and the rise of the mRNA technology that's behind the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines. Um, the vaccines, as many people will obviously know, were developed incredibly quickly and uh, have been a marvel of scientific endeavor but very few people would have thought that we would have had the vaccines before the end of 2020 2020 when the first ones arrived Uh, some predictions put them at years away but huge amounts of time effort and money have been put into the vaccines that we now have and millions of people around the world have uh, received doses of and mrna which has been which has never been used in vaccines before is a large part of that vicky this week we were reporting around uh, the development of our mrna and how it works that's right so mrna vaccines work a bit differently to your traditional vaccines which might use either a killed virus or part of a virus protein to provoke an immune response mrna is a molecule that our cells use to carry instructions from our genes so an mrna vaccine is therefore essentially delivering instructions to your own cells telling them to make, say, antigens against a virus, for instance. It's almost telling your own body how to make the vaccine itself. And this is the platform that several of the very first COVID-19 vaccines used and that we're still receiving today, including the one by Pfizer and BioNTech and one by Moderna. They're, They're actually the first mRNA vaccines that have ever been approved for any disease. So this technology was sort of just in the works conveniently at the same time that we desperately needed a faster way to make a vaccine for a global pandemic. Yeah, it was uh, sort of very almost convenient in that way. But um, for many people, uh, the pandemic will have been the first time that they've heard of mRNA. But in fact, it's actually not a new technology at all. It's one that's been around and the ideas behind it have been uh, around for decades, haven't they? Yeah, so the idea of mRNA and using it as, you know, a drug or a vaccine goes back several decades. And one of the key players in developing the technology is a Hungarian biochemist called Katalin Karako. She's now based in the US. Karako started working with mRNA as early as 1989, and she was convinced of its potential in medicine. But there were some problems. Introducing RNA from an outside source caused lab animals to die. It was toxic. There was no way that you'd be able to use it in humans. But Carico and her colleagues solved this problem and they came up with a way to safely introduce mRNA into the body. It was a really big breakthrough, but for a long time, her research didn't really get picked up. A lot of people just weren't really interested in mRNA, didn't really believe in its potential. A few groups and companies, however, including Moderna and BioNTech, which Carico works with, were sort of interested in this potential new platform. And that, as we said, just happened to coincide with this global pandemic. So they started trying to use the mRNA platform to make a COVID-19 vaccine. And here we are with at least two mRNA COVID vaccines in widespread use. And Carico now finds herself something of a scientific celebrity. But really, we might just be at the beginning of seeing what mRNA can do for us. The platform was never developed specifically with COVID-19 in mind. As you say, Matt, this research goes back a long way. And researchers hope that it could be used to develop vaccines and drugs for all sorts of other diseases. 
the approval of these first vaccines for COVID may signal something much bigger than just a COVID vaccine. It could represent a real step forward in vaccines more generally. Yeah, and the success and the speed of the the mRNA techniques that were used to develop uh, the vaccines that we have now has really sort of like uh, increased the the focus on the sort of underlying technology and how other mRNA vaccines could be uh, could be used and, and developed going forward. And we've already started to see um, the. Uh, other vaccines, other potential vaccines or candidates at the very least, um, development, they're starting to sort of explode. So um, the field has been sort of compared to uh, as an early stage of a gold rush by some people, um, as pharma giants have snapped up promising researchers for huge contracts. Um, Moderna and BioNTech each have nine different mRNA uh, candidates in development or in early clinical trials. And um, other uh, companies, including those two companies, have announced work on different vaccine candidates for other types of viruses and diseases. So, um, among other things, there is mRNA work going on that's looking at HIV, Zika, herpes, hepatitis, and malaria. Um, and while all of these are uh, relatively sort of exotic diseases, um, there there is potential as well for um, mRNA vaccines to be created for one very familiar problem that we have, and that's the flu. That's right. We maybe underestimate quite what an issue flu still is. You know, you might think, oh, well, it's just the flu, you know, happens every year. Um, But flu actually still kills over 300,000 people worldwide each year. And while we do have a vaccine and lots of people have access to the vaccine, frankly, it's not that great. There's a different flu vaccine every year and often it's not even 50% effective. So for those working in the field, a better flu vaccine is really something of a holy grail to develop. The problem with flu is that, as we know, it changes every year. It mutates very quickly as a virus. In fact, so quickly that it can change during the time that it takes to make a flu vaccine. So you can be making a vaccine for one strain and then by the time you've got it ready, it's mutated and another strain is more virulent. And that's because the way we make flu vaccines is very old school and very time consuming. It's a killed virus approach. It involves literally growing flu strains in hen's eggs. mRNA vaccines, on the other hand, are much quicker to make than these old killed virus vaccines. It can take weeks, not months, to put one together. So you can be much more reactive to events changing. So if we could make one for flu... We could potentially wait later to start it, make sure we've got the right strain, even make multiple per season. And there are currently several groups trying to do this. And while that sort of approach would be very uh, useful and potentially more effective than the the current ways that we uh, come up with flu vaccines at the moment, there's also uh, more ambitious work happening in the area. There's the idea that a universal mRNA vaccine could be created for the flu. So the idea is that one vaccine would potentially last for years and people might not have to get a a regular vaccine every single year. Um, And one of the the groups that is sort of leading this uh, universal flu vaccine um uh, exploration uh has been from the university university of pennsylvania uh and the group led by norbert party and those colleagues have been and people working on that have actually had some success already ricky 
Yeah, so this is the idea that instead of making a different flu vaccine every year, what if you could make one that actually targets multiple strains? So it doesn't have to change when the virus mutates. And Pardee at the University of Pennsylvania and his group are trying to target basically the bit of the flu virus that remains the same or looking at multiple sites on the virus across multiple strains. What if you could put that all in one vaccine? Now, that would be very slow and costly with killed virus vaccines. But this is where the mRNA platform potentially could change things because it makes it much more feasible because it's so much faster to make different types of vaccines you could potentially test things a lot more quickly so while this is early work if it did pan out and if you know mrna as a platform proved that it was possible you could imagine a flu vaccine that lasts multiple years as well as you know potentially being more effective if we can solve several of these problems at once And as we mentioned earlier, um, mRNA is not just being used to look at uh, flu. There's plenty of other areas that um, researchers excited about the technology uh, being potentially be able to sort of help uh, and create new vaccines. And chief among them is HIV, which after around 40 years of it being discovered, experts say uh, that we're not close to a cure, even though there have been some developments and and things with treatments. Um, The the sort of like the, the bigger goal is still is still out there. Um, And why are people sort of excited about what mRNA could mean for HIV um, going forward? HIV is obviously one of those big intractable problems that the healthcare community has faced for a long time. And, you know, we've been working on it for so long. How come we don't have a vaccine? How come we don't have a really good treatment? And The answer to that is that HIV is just a very tricky virus. It's a long-term infection. It can hide in your cells for a long time and it can mutate very, very fast to the point that you can even have multiple variants in one patient, which makes it hard to know what to even target a vaccine at. In coronavirus, you might have heard people talk about the spike protein, which is the part of the virus that most of the vaccines target. It's a very obvious target for a vaccine. But HIV doesn't have anything like that that's a really obvious thing to make a vaccine against. People do sometimes develop antibodies to help fight off HIV, but often by the time they do, it's too late. The disease has progressed too far Um, It's just not enough to really help. But if we could recreate that kind of immune response using a vaccine in people who have more recently been exposed to HIV or or are then exposed, perhaps that could help. This is one idea that researchers are working on. Now, the problem is, again, that using the traditional approach, this is going to require an awful lot of trial and error. And with those older vaccine platforms, it soon just becomes really logistically unfeasible. You know, you're putting together lots of different vaccines. The development and testing takes so long. You can't easily test lots of different ideas at once. But because mRNA vaccines are theoretically so much faster to make and develop, it could reduce that timeline. And suddenly these really ambitious ideas appear more possible. Now, I should caveat that, you know, we don't know whether this approach would actually work. But mRNA could at least be able to tell us that maybe it doesn't work faster. So it's basically the speed and ease of using mRNA and making new vaccines using this technology makes a lot of big, widespread, ambitious projects potentially more feasible. And that's why lots of people working on different uh, infectious diseases are quite excited about it. 
Yeah, there is definitely uh, a lot of, um, in some ways, hype in the area, but we've seen um, that actually with the with COVID-19 we've seen that this technique can be successful in a very short amount of time and very effective which is sort of why uh, a lot of the excitement around this is very justified um, but where where does this all go next and when might we actually see results because presumably it won't be quite as fast as what we've seen during the pandemic when there has been an urgent need to uh, be able to sort of stem some of the uh, the spread of the virus and to try and counteract those measures. Yeah, as you say, Matt, a lot of researchers and companies are currently working on more mRNA vaccines. Because of their success with COVID-19, it's sort of caused this boom in interest from, you know, an area that was very niche. It's now very mainstream. Everyone wants to be a part of it. BioNTech told us they hope to get their flu vaccine in testing this year. Of course, it's hard to predict with this sort of research how long it may take. And safety is naturally a top priority. First, we need to see if any of these ideas actually work. You know, we're still sort of at early stages with all of this. And then it takes a while to go through the process of bringing them to life and actually, you know, getting them to people who they they might help. But Carico, who's been working on this for so long, is just excited to finally see people working on mRNA in so many areas. She says that 10 years ago when she was working on this, she wrote a list of 30 diseases that she thought RNA could be good for and there's lots of groups who have already started working on some of those but she says for her there's still 25 left so you know we'll see how things go but potentially this could be uh, a real start of a new revolution in the way that we make vaccines. Let's just bring this back to the pandemic for a second there's a lot of concern right now about the Delta variant which is spreading in the UK and has caused um, so many problems in India, even though there are these concerns and a lot of people are losing their lives to this variant, the speed at which potentially even more troublesome variants come about shouldn't be too much of a problem because mRNA can be retooled so quickly, which will allow us to develop vaccines to go after any variant, whereas before we might have been on the back foot. Is that right? That's the hope. Um, You know, because mRNA as a platform is theoretically so much faster at creating new vaccines, uh, you know, the hope is that if, if there were a variant that the current vaccines proved ineffective against, maybe we'd be able to make a new one that was effective faster. Of course, with these things, you know, the proof is always in the pudding. <laughs> the proof is always in the pudding. Yeah, that's a saying, isn't it? The proof is, is in yeah. the pudding. Um, so I wouldn't want to like, you know, overstate anything. And of course, it would depend exactly on, you know, what mutations were present and how it all worked. Um, but that is why people are excited about mRNA as a platform. And I think, as Matt said right at the beginning, if a year or so ago, slightly more than a year, um, we probably wouldn't have assumed there would have been vaccines ready in this timescale, let alone vaccines that are going after specific variants. So we really are in a remarkable position, even with everything that's happened to potentially vaccinate our way out of this pandemic. It's a fascinating story, the vaccine revolution being powered by mRNA. And it's the cover feature of the latest edition of Wired magazine, which is out now. Head to wired.co.uk forward slash subscribe to pick up a copy and it's also available on newsstands our second story this week is about 
brain training for the police. Now, it won't be surprising news to anyone that in some countries there are big problems with the use of force by police officers. In the United States in particular, there are thousands of examples of police either using excessive force or discharging their firearms in situations that don't warrant such behaviour. Amit, you've been looking into one technological solution to what, as far as anyone can see, is actually a huge, complicated, systemic problem. That's right, James. Yes. So I've been looking into police training and from speaking to police officers, the way that police are trained hasn't really changed that much in 30 years, particularly in the United States, where there's still a lot of shooting of paper cutouts and scenario based training where your colleagues might stand in for a criminal and you act out how to react in that scenario. In the US, the average police academy training program, which you know teaches officers the physical techniques of how to restrain suspects, how to handle their weapons, only lasts between thirteen and nineteen weeks. So you can go from being a you know a new a new uh, recruit to being on the streets, you know, dealing with people within you know six months. Now there's a new wave of companies that are trying to bring science to police training, brain-based training to policing, and the idea is to help officers make better decisions and train them for the job in ways that they aren't being prepared right now in the hope that it will cut down on this use of force and try and prevent some of the terrible incidents that we've seen over the last couple of years of of, uh, people sadly being killed by the police. It's a huge issue. So let's leave to one side for a minute, if we can. There's this issue that using technology to solve very human problems is exceedingly fraught. But leaving that to one side, how do these systems claim to work? So weirdly, it all kind of starts with baseball. So in 2015, I was researching a book about sports performance and I met a guy called Jason Sherwin. His company is called DeServo and they just launched a product called U-Hit, which was a training tool designed for baseball hitters. The tool was pretty simple. So they watched a ball coming towards them on a screen and they had to predict what type of delivery it was, which way it was going to swerve or swing. And the idea was to help them train above the neck is how they put it. So gaining valuable experience without actually having to be on the field without you know risking injury or putting their body through physical stress they could gain experience of learning to read advanced cues to the shape of a pitcher's arm the position of the stitching on the ball as it comes towards you which gives gives them clues about where the ball might move and the idea was but by training in this way it could help them make better decisions under high pressure now you can see there's parallels with police officers in some way so police officers also have to make decisions under immense levels of pressure with much higher stakes but they barely get trained for it at all so while a high school football player in the u.s might practice for more than 500 hours a season a police officer may only go to the shooting range a couple of times a year and they might have a handful of other scenario-based training sessions built in sherwin says it's the most high risk work possible and we don't provide them with the training so from baseball and some other sports he pivoted to survey the company that he founded towards policing and they use the same underlying system and footage Uh, from body cams rather than from baseball games to create a personalised training system that's now being trialled with the NYPD and being marketed to other police departments all over the United States and the world. And it claims to be able to train the brain's decision-making system under pressure better than existing training systems, so it's better at tapping into the same neural circuits that will be active during a real incident. Okay, so give me an example of how that works in practice. I'm a police officer, I'm taking this training... What's it going to try and get me to do? So there's a bunch of different use cases for this. But to take one example, you'll be shown real body cam footage of a traffic stop, for instance. uh, And then you'll be asked questions about what you do in each scenario. And you can rewind the footage and play it back in slow motion. 
And the idea is that it teaches you the subtle cues that normally require years of real-world experience to pick up. So in sport, that might be using the angle of an opponent's hips to predict which way they're going to move. In policing, it could be someone's body language or the way that they angle the car when you pull them over. These could all be hints that they may be about to try and flee. One police officer, Rudy Hall, who, who's been with the NYPD for 20 years and is working with the survey, said it's about diffusing the knowledge from these really subtle cues and teaching it to more people at once. So rather than having to learn that experience through trial and error, essentially, on, on real people, you can share the knowledge more evenly across the police force. So if one person learns it once and it's recorded by a body cam, the app can take that knowledge and, and share it more widely to the rest of the police force. I do want to get on to why this is a strange solution to a much bigger problem in a second, but let's stick with the story. There's a basis in science here, right? Even if technology can't solve this huge problem, the theory is somewhat solid. You can train people to behave differently in high-pressure situations. So be it a baseballer playing in the World Series or a police officer attending a crime scene, there's a potential to change the way people behave by training them to behave differently. Yeah, exactly. So I want to kind of go back to the way the brain processes information, the way the brain makes decisions. And this split has been defined in lots of different ways over the years. You know, uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote a great book about this. Um, But there are essentially two decision making systems in the brain. One is kind of slow and considered. The other is fast and instinctive. And in stressful situations, a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is involved in our fear response, can send a signal that essentially bypasses the more rational prefrontal areas involved in reasoning and revert straight to basic instincts. Um, researchers in the Netherlands found that shooting accuracy, communication and self-defence skills all decrease when stress levels are high and that officers were more likely to fire on suspects who had already surrendered in high anxiety situations. So this is a classic example of an amygdala hijack where the, the fear-based part of the brain takes over rational decision-making and you see it in sport all the time and you also see it in policing where police go into a situation panicky and they end up making really bad decisions. So the idea behind this kind of training is to build up the neural circuits which can help in two ways. The first thing is kind of obvious. So it's that when officers go into a stressful situation, it's not the first time they've ever experienced that situation. So their amygdala is less likely to be what the hell's going on and take over. So, you know, if you can show officers body cam footage of similar situations in the past, then when they are faced with that situation in real life, they're not, you know, essentially making decisions on the fly. They've got a a pool of knowledge to work from. And the second idea is to build up the automatic neural circuit so that if the amygdala does take over, if you do have to make an instinctive decision because you're stressed or because it's a you know split second thing and you've got to react really quickly, making sure those snap decisions are the right decisions, making sure you don't make the wrong decision in the heat of the moment. So training those circuits so that you do make the right decision. And this tech could go further in future. So I spoke to Mike Malpass, he's a police officer in Arizona, a former SWAT team member, and he wrote a book on neuroscience training in policing called Taming the Serpent. He would like to see technology, um, biometric technology being used to track police officers and spot things like fatigue or anxiety. He sees a situation in the future where an officer's, you know, vital signs could be tracked and relayed to their dispatcher who could keep an eye on their heart rate or their breathing and advise them to take a 10 minute time out if they're still amped up from one call before they go to the next one. And that's another link with sports and sports performance, isn't it? We're used to talking about professional athletes in those sort of terms, about every single twitch and movement and even, you know, their their vital signs being tracked and used to better their performance. So this link between sports and policing is interesting, to say the least. Do you think it stands up? I think 
It's the same sort of decision-making process in some ways. Officers are obviously in physical danger as well as mental danger. So, you know, if you're an athlete, your risk is missing the the penalty that's going to win the World Cup and the emotional and uh, societal trauma that comes with that. If you're an officer, you might be in actual physical danger, not just yourself, but also the people around you because you're, you know, in the US at least, you're probably armed and there's probably a high chance that the person opposite you might be armed if you're dealing with a, a known criminal, for instance. So... Uh, you know, in policing, if a suspect comes towards you waving an object and you have to make a quick decision about what to do, you need to read the body language, you need to read other cues to give you information to work on. If you can't see exactly what they're holding, you have to make an assessment based on everything you know uh, and hope that you come to the right decision. And the thing is that the stakes are so much higher and the the penalty for getting it wrong is so much higher. You know, a baseball hitter who makes the right decision 30% of the time is an elite athlete. Right, they're in they're in the major leagues because they can pick out pitches and hit home runs a, a, a big percentage of the time. A police officer who makes the right decision thirty percent of the time is probably disbarred or dead or in jail. Right, you know the the margins are not there for this kind of decision making. So there are some parallels with policing and sport, but an interesting thing one of the officers I spoke to said to me was that policing is easy ninety nine percent of the time. You know, most of the time it's a very very easy interaction with the person that you're speaking to. You might be writing them a ticket. They take it in good grace, they accept their punishment, and they drive off, you drive off, go to the next scene. But, you know, one in every hundred or one in every thousand times, it's this intensely high-pressure situation, and the rarity of it makes it inherently difficult to prepare and inherently difficult to train for. This is the problem with the sports comparison, right? Policing isn't like baseball. Uh, if a baseball player is prejudiced or racist or prone to violent outbursts, then that probably doesn't have too much of an impact on their ability to hit a baseball really successfully. Whereas if a police officer is, as we've seen, the way that some police officers approach black people is very different to the way that police officers approach white people. So you can't train racism or excessive violence out of people with a game, right? This is a really, really big, systemic, deep-rooted problem a police officer shooting an unarmed black person isn't a split-second decision, even though it might appear to be. It's based on centuries of prejudice. And that's what you need to fix, surely. Yeah, so as you alluded to there, James, black people in America are more than three times more likely to die during an interaction with the police than white people. There's a bunch of police forces doing implicit bias training and things like that. Uh, Rudy Hall, the NYPD officer who is black, suggests that E-Train could be used to help identify when officers might have unseen bias. If they react differently to simulated encounters with black suspects on the app, that could be used to flag them and you could have a word with them and say, OK, well, you need to either have more training or something to, to deal with that situation. But I think the key point is that you know, we've been thinking about this in terms of the analogy of a sport and the pitch and a baseball player swinging or missing. But the point is, by the time you approach your suspect with a gun drawn and you have to make a split second decision about whether to shoot them or not, you've already kind of lost the game. And, and US police have been accused of behaving more like soldiers dropped into hostile territory when they're handling arrests or protests, um, particularly when dealing with black suspects, right? That's part of the issue is that they treat black suspects more more aggressively than white suspects and therefore when they approach them they're more amped up and more likely to make a bad decision and this this has been called the militarization of the police and it starts with equipment but it seeps into behavior patterns and attitudes to suspects as well 
Mike Malpass, the officer I spoke to who wrote the book, says that officers sometimes rush into physical altercations and then they have they have to resort to using force because they find themselves being overpowered when a more cautious strategy might have been able to resolve the situation peacefully. Again, this is something where there's a discrepancy between how black uh, people are treated versus white people by the police in certain situations. But the thing is, police officers put themselves in situations where they don't have enough time to think. And the problem with this brain training technology is that it's targeted at those split second decisions when you don't have enough time to think. It's that it's, you know, you're approaching someone with, your, with a gun drawn and you don't know if they're holding up a gun or if they're holding up a smartphone. But actually, the training needs to focus, this is what Malpass thinks, needs to focus on the bit before that. It's giving, teaching them how to give themselves time to think. So making sure that they don't end up in that split second heat of the moment decision in the first place. There's a really interesting report from 2006 that showed that police academies spent 110 hours doing shooting training and only eight hours doing conflict resolution training. So it's all about what to do when you're in the conflict and really, really little focus on how to actually avoid getting into that conflict in the first place. And I think brain training may fall into that trap as well. It's that veneer of science targeted almost at the wrong problem. And as you say, we need to rework how these interactions go from the start. And that will take not an app that needs systemic widespread change and also societal change, which I suspect no amount of apps or training programs can actually fix. And you can see that playing out in major policing incidents in the US in recent history, right? So the capital insurrection, they pretty much walked into the building, were allowed to get right up to the US Capitol with very little interference from the police up against some of the Black Lives Matter protests, which were very, very over-policed and violently policed. So Amit, do you have any hope? Is there any reason to believe that brain training is of any use? Or as you said just then, is it kind of adding a layer of scientific veneer to something that is such a big problem, it will probably have no impact? I think it's good in the sense that it is more training, right? And the fact that it's neuroscience-based, in inverted commas, is sort of irrelevant. I think that more training to make better decisions is can only be a good thing. Uh, but if it's done in isolation as a way of saying, well, we've ticked that box, so we don't need to worry about the rest of the training program, then that could be a problem. It could be a distraction. It's such a fascinating area. And I mean, there there are no easy answers. And to a degree, this seems like an easy answer, which kind of makes me a bit wary of it. You know, if you've got a problem police force or a problem officer, then you just run them through an app, give them some additional training off the back of it. If you don't put the, the structures and systems in place, you know, defund the police, reform the police, um, then you're still going to have the underlying problem, but you might have a shiny app. Yeah, I think the existence of companies like this and to serve aren't the only ones. There are a few others doing similar sort of things and there's talk of bringing VR into play as well and you can get these really hyper-realistic simulations with, you know, soap bullets and, and, and electronic devices that disable your arm if you get shot in the arm in a training exercise so that you can really feel what it's like to have been, been hit by a bullet and things like that. But these kinds of technologies tend to spring up around industries where there are people looking for an edge and... Uh, organizations with big procurement budgets right the the problem is that throwing money at the problem isn't necessarily going to fix it and you know there's been a lot of talk around defunding the police and things like that and you can you can think about that what you will but um the point is i think that there needs to be a, a a realignment of the interaction between police and public and the way that 
the whole process works. And I think in the United States in particular, it's often seen as a battle in a way. It's, you know, what, how can we give ourselves an edge against the public? And it's not the way that it necessarily should work if you want a peaceful outcome. And there's another element to this story as well about how we think about technology. Ten years ago or so, we might have supposed that the technology will save us, but recent history has shown that that probably isn't going to be the case and that we need to do the hard work rather than rely on the next shiny thing or big innovation, right? Yeah, that's right. I think technology is a amplifier of underlying problems rather than something that makes them go away. I think we've seen that in so many fields from AI to, you know, a bunch of other things. And I think this is probably the case here as well. Podcast at wired.co.uk. It's a fascinating story that raises all sorts of questions. It would be really great to hear from you with thoughts on that or anything else that we've talked about on the show this week or in other recent episodes. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Time for a couple of your emails now. Amit, you've got the first one. Yeah, I do. So Aaron wrote in from Utah about the piece we did back in April about the social media boycott by football teams. He wonders whether instead of being banned, accounts that share racist or hateful content could be tagged and then shadow banned so that they're shouting into the void, as it were. I think that I actually disagree with Aaron. I think that a shadow banning approach is problematic for two reasons. Firstly, because it leaves the hateful content up there. And if you're directing messages directly at individuals, then shadow banning doesn't actually make a lot of difference and the second thing is i think the lack of transparency i'd find problematic i think it's important for platforms to be really super transparent about why and when they're taking action against accounts and and shadow banning probably risks falling into a kind of gray area where you get groups that haven't actually been shadow banned claiming that there's a vendetta against them by social media companies and i think it just raises a lot more problems than it solves but it's certainly an interesting idea aaron so thank you for writing in yeah thanks very much for that and matt you've got one more email for this week Yes, uh, we had an email from James writing in about end-to-end encryption, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, They said that it's interesting that uh, essentially a decade ago there was uh, the worry and concern that Facebook and other big technology companies could see too much information about what we're doing and everything was... uh, uh, There was so much data collection happening. Um, And now, uh, in contrast, the privacy measures they put in place, uh, such as end-to-end encryption to help protect uh, people's messages, are being criticised for being too private by some areas Um, and James says that uh, surely a conversation between people can't be monitored and viewed by people outside of that conversation Uh, and they say that just in the same way that you were talking about somebody if you were talking to somebody in the street and somebody came over and started to uh, ask what you were talking about or try to listen you might tell them to go away because it's a private conversation and drawing that sort of parallel between uh, the two different uh, the online world and the uh, and the real world. Matt, this is this is this is your area. You've spent many years looking into it. Do you think that's a fair comparison to make? That you know we had a go at Facebook for hoovering up too much data, and now we're having a go at Facebook again for being too private. I think that there there are different potential 
uh, scenarios for that. So I think that Facebook's data collection is still, uh, in, in many people's eyes, very problematic in terms of the amount of data it collects about people and, and how it can sort of infer uh, people's likes and dislikes and behaviours and interests and then uh, be able to sort of target ads at them. Uh, whereas on the flip side, the uh, the criticism around sort of the uh, privacy tools and end-to-end encryption that they've in- introduced comes from a very different perspective of uh, quite often law enforcement or people trying to investigate crimes um, as well. So um, while it is uh, a little bit ironic, uh, the sort of that that's the way that uh, some of the conversations have gone. I think that they can they both can sort of rightly exist in in parallel um, and have different answers and different uh, potential uh, solutions or ways of moving things forward. And fundamentally, the way that Facebook acts is always directed at making the world better for Facebook, right? Facebook wants to attract more users to make more money. It's a private company. It, it, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a company. That's, that's the way it, it's meant to work. So to suppose that on, on the one hand, it's problematic that it's collecting so much data. And on the other hand, it's problematic that it's introducing measures that make information too private. Um, it's interesting, but it kind of goes against the idea, you know, Facebook is a huge advertising company and everything that it's doing is revolved around the idea of selling more ads and making more money but it's certainly an interesting point to raise so thanks very much for getting in touch podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show we really do love hearing from you that's it for this week we'll be back again same time next week have a good one take care Bye-bye. bye bye bye